Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, guys. Welcome back for episode three of Fresh Take with Joey and Ranveer. Today we have one of my really good friends on, Nick Roberts. Um, I met him in 2018 on the Poonam Gill campaign that I was on, and um, we became really close outside of that, and we have gotten to become really good friends. Um, he has met numerous uh, candidates and numerous presidents, starting with you know, Jimmy Carter, Biden, um, Obama. You know, if, if you want to name a candidate, he's probably met them. Um, and I cannot wait to talk to him today and just have a good time. Um, Enjoy. And we're back. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in for the third episode. If we didn't lose you on the first two, then I feel pretty good that we have some lifelong listeners here. Um, last week, we talked a lot about public education and how that has affected kind of the American culture. This week, you want to give them a little bit? Yeah, this week we have one of my really good friends on, Nick Roberts. Um, he is, I'll get more into it as we go, but he is one of my really good friends. I've worked with him on one really big campaign, probably one of the biggest campaigns both of us have been on, um, person on a personal level. But um, I just can't wait to go about this podcast. And uh, you want to introduce yourself, Nick? Um, so my name is Nick Roberts. I am a sophomore political science and economics student at IEPY. Um, I've got a lot of good campaign work. I've been very fortunate to work on some really good local campaigns. Um, I think you learn a lot from local campaigns in politics. You know, not everything that you would assume going in is actually true. Um, and I'm, I've been really lucky to work with some awesome campaigns, uh, some awesome candidates themselves. Um, met some awesome people like Renvier, and I've been very fortunate to have got a lot of good experience through it. And um, most importantly, again, I've learned a lot and. I think there's some things that people uh, may be surprised to hear about about local campaigns. Definitely some misconceptions when it comes to the local campaign um, sphere. I want to start off with uh, this question. Why do you think local campaigns are so important? I think they're really important in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, there's the, 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 the obvious answer that um, the local campaigns, you know, they pave your roads. They reduce crime in your neighborhood. They are, are giving money to to the schools to help your kids get better education. I mean, there's the surface level stuff in that way, but I think more importantly, um, local politics really, um, I think can show people the, 
opportunity that politics has to really improve people's lives with everything in national government people can get so cynical watching trump and biden and you know hillary and all these people that are tend to be demonized and that are very toxic people all think or at least as that's perceived by a lot of people um but i think locally i mean the mayor's the guy that paves your roads he's the he sends the kids to the same school that yours do there's a lot less divisiveness there and there's really an opportunity for people to get to know their elected officials on a on a real basis and i mean that's really important it it, it shows people what politics can be and um, it obviously has a lot more of an impact to affect people's lives on a day-to-day basis that I think people wouldn't even realize. So I have a question about that. Um, with local elections, you lose the ability to have kind of widespread media coverage. So how are people in their kind of district supposed to go out and, and meet these people? Or how do they get involved is, is a, I think, a better way to ask that. Yeah, well, as cliche as this sounds, I think the beautiful part about local campaigns is so much of it's going door-to-door. It's about, you know, neighbor telling another neighbor, hey, we have this awesome candidate for state representative. You should check her out. Um, and a lot of it is just, you know, the communities realizing who these candidates are and going from there. And that's what's so great, too. If you see a candidate you like yourself, you can email them. You can go on their Facebook page, go on their website, find an opportunity and say, hey, I want to help you out. And the campaign will say yes 99% of the time. And your impact can really be seen on the local level. If you're going in your own neighborhood, telling your friends, family, neighbors, hey, there's this awesome you know, guy. He's running on some really good issues. He's running to be our next city councilor. There's really an opportunity there for people to make an impact on a, on a personal level and get their community benefited because they know people that are uh, making a difference on a local level. So I think it's as cliche as it sounds, I think it's a really beautiful thing to have um, candidates who are able to go door to door in their own communities and advocate for themselves and you know people who are running a similar campaign to what they want and um, it's really important to have those things in such a national politics focused time. I mean, right now there's so much, it's so much about the national issues and it makes sense given COVID and, and, and Black Lives Matter protests and so many things, which are so divisive and so nationally media focused. Um, but at the end of the day, local issues really are where things get done. And even though the national politics do overshadow the local politics, there's really just such an importance for people to have good elected officials in their communities who are really looking out for them in their family's best interest. Yeah, with local races, you're really able to get personable with that candidate. And it's so easy. You could DM them on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so with Fat, I'm an intern on Fatty Kador's campaign right now. You're pretty familiar with Fatty yep. as well. Um, we do literature drops uh, twice a week, um, and we do phone calls every day. Um, the phone calls get quite... Um, tedious and sad at some points because I just get hung up on occasionally. But why is all that stuff so important? Why is it important for a, for a local candidate to be so approachable, to be so uh, reachable? Yeah. Well, I think kind of gets back to some of the points that I was making before about why, you know, the, the, these candidates running for office, you know, Fatty's kids go to local high school. You know, he's the city controller. He knows so many people in the, in the district and I, I don't think the average person living there cares whether he's a Democrat or Republican like they do on the national stuff. They really just want somebody who's going to get in there and do a good job for their district because whether it's a Democrat or Republican fixing their pothole, I don't think they really care that much. And People in Carmel say otherwise. Yeah, yeah there, there, might be, <laughs> there might be some objections every, objections every once in a while, but if, but if you were to go to their house and tell them, hey, your state senator is really doing a good job here – and they're fixing. They're literally fixing your pothole today. I don't think they would care. Maybe when they go to the ballot box, they care a bit. Yeah. But 
I, I think at the end of the day, people tend to be a lot less partisan on local issues. It's much more about your connection with the campaign. Yeah, and that's what's so great sure. is a high schooler who's just getting started can go door to door and they can say, hey, you know, I'm not a policy expert. Well, they're probably not going to say this, but what, what, what they might know is, hey, I'm not a policy expert. And everybody will know they're not a policy expert. I mean, they're 17, 16. Yeah. Um, but they can say, I have a connection with this campaign. They're running on some issues that really matter to me. And I think that resonates with a lot of people that know that, you know, if this guy, Joe Schmo, is running for state senate, they're not some D.C. political operative that's coming to their district to run. They're somebody who's invested in the district. They know the people. They know the issues. And it's a lot more of a you know coming together thing that can happen, um, and people are more, a lot more willing to set aside their ideologies to really get problem solvers elected who can actually solve the issues of the district. So I have a question for both of you because I'm the least politically minded person in the room right now. Um, but you brought up an interesting concept where local elections don't necessarily revolve around Democrat or Republican. Do you think this is like if we lean into that a bit more, that can spread to the to the national stage, or is it always going to be very, very partisan and national, and then, or uh, yeah, very partisan and national, and more of I believe in this person because they live in my community at a local level. Do you think we can ever bridge that gap at a national level? I think that's a really good question. Um, I think part of it is there's not as much of a, a fighting mentality in local politics. So even if the Democrats and Republicans are really divided on the issues. Or anything else, um, I think the fact that you have you know CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, these media hosts making a constant D versus R battle, it really gets this idea in people's mind of you're either on this team or this team, and there's no middle ground. Whereas locally, I mean, if you look at the votes for the city councils, a lot of them are unanimous. Um, there's a lot more consensus building. It's pretty rare to have somebody winning with 70, 80 percent of the vote on a national level, but locally, that's a pretty common thing. If there's somebody who's pretty popular. Um, and I think that's, again, something I'm actually thinking about now. I, I think it's possible, and it really will start on the local level if that is going to happen. I yeah. think getting people in there, especially young people who are going to be voting for the next 60, 70 years, who will understand those things. And I people say that our generation is the, the most nonpartisan. They tend to understand that not everything is either Democratic solution or Republican solution. And I'm saying this to somebody who's involved with the Democratic Party, but the reality of it is, no party is 100% perfect, and there's going to be good, good and bad people in both parties. Um, and I, I, I think it will really have a possibility where we're going to do that on the national level. But I think part of it, too, is just it's so much harder to build a personal connection with a Senate or you know, a House candidate, and especially a president, too, because that's such a, yeah. it, it's such a more of a divisive thing. And people are very opinionated on that, and social media tends to amplify it one way or the other. Yeah. You know, If you go on Facebook – you know, my grandmother, I love her, but, you know, her Facebook <laughs> is just all about Joe Biden and all these conspiracy theories. And that doesn't really happen on the local level. You know, you don't hear much about the local people on a negative level. You'll see them at the, the bingo hall and you'll think, it, you know, oh, that's great. My mayor's there. Mm -hmm. And you don't see conspiracy theories about your mayor or city councilor, uh, you know, on Facebook. Um, and that's the reality of it is there's just a lot less divisiveness, which I think really does let people kind of cross party lines and. I, it's hard to see it on the federal level. I think it's possible, but I think it would take sort of a reemphasis in the schools and, you know, the media about what it really takes to be a voter. And unfortunately, right now, it's incentivized. They're incentivized to make it a D versus R battle. Cause that's what people like to see, and they like to have it be this constant fight. But I think you need to come from the schools or some other way to really make it a point in people's heads that it can be better and it can be less divisive on a national level too. Yeah. So I kind of disagree with you. What, because of the last thing that you said, um, 
CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, um, Politico, NPR, whatever, they are incentivized to lean very far light, far right or far left, yeah. even though they may not be far right or far left. You know, sometimes I get the feeling that Tucker Carlson or Don Lemon may not be as far left or as far right as they appear. And I think they do it for views. And I think that's where the national on the national level is so much different. Like in Fishers, Indiana, you have uh, Larry, this guy named Larry that does all the. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, Larry. Larry, and Larry and Fishers. Larry. Oh, Larry yeah, Fishers. Yeah, yeah, Larry I did Fishers. A parade with him. He does. He does all of like he keeps up with the uh, politics, local politics, and he d- doesn't have an incentive to go one way or another yeah. when it comes to the parties. He's a great guy. So he just kind of reports on the facts. And I think until our media starts to report on solely facts, we won't have, you know, the nonpartisanship almost that we have on the local level. Well, I think there's also the problem of the shrinking of the moderates. And I think that's just a visual thing because it's always the top 10 percent of voices are the most like the most heard. So like the loudest on both sides are the ones that are going to make the headlines. So it makes it seem like the moderate middle is completely disappearing. So you have nowhere to be like, okay, we agree on this if there's no, I'm going to use an analogy, if you're on one side of the ocean and uh, someone that has a different political view than you is on the other side, there's no island in the middle that you can meet on for ideas. So it feels like that that gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and wider and wider and wider. Do you think that's really the case or do you think it's just like a perception thing? I, I think it's largely perception. I think if you're watching CNN or Fox News, they don't amplify the, the Democrats who are the more rank-and-file people or the Republicans who are the more rank-and-file people. They like to, they like to you know, show all the crazy people on one side or the other that are saying the outlandish things because that's what really generates excitement and that's what generates you know, conversation. And Unfortunately, until we start electing better people, there's always going to be that incentive to be either far left or far right or not even far in either direction, but just to be a very loud voice. And that's the reality of anything, business, politics, you know, c- celebrity culture. There's always the incentive to be an outspoken person in one, in one way or the another. Um, and I don't think politics is really much different from that. I mean, if you look at business or something, you have people like Elon Musk who are so opinionated and, and so much, uh, you know, uh, a divisive figure. And those are the people that get attention. You don't see the, the, the milk toast um, CEO of whatever, you know, Ford or Honda getting that much attention because the reality of it is they're not in it for that and you don't see them being talked about on CNN and Fox News 24-7. So I, I, I don't think this is just a politics-specific thing, unfortunately. I, I think it's just uh, a symptom of our entire culture and a celebrity culture, too, the fact that people love to be talking about the new hot topic, whether it's Kanye or Elon Musk or Jim Jordan in Congress or AOC, like there's always somebody, and I, I like AOC too, so it's not even a, a diss at her, but she's a you know very controversial person of I'm politics in love to talk with about. AOC. Yeah, no, you she's great. She's great. I've been tweeting it for like four days straight that I'm in love with AOC. <laughs> One of these days it has to work. <laughs> she's gonna, yeah, she's, she's gonna to reply, work. right? She has to. I, I'm sure she will. You should be like the egg on uh, on Instagram that had the <laughs> egg every day, then by like the hundredth day, they, they got the most liked posts on Instagram. I bet. I'll try. <laughs> yeah. It'll work. You know, the dedication really will pay off someday. But anyways, yeah. Like, I think people just like to see people that have new opinions or they're outspoken about something they weren't expecting. And politics will really reward people to do that. And that's why I think the far left and the far right tend to get more attention. Mm-hmm. Is there the new extremes and the new 
Not that I think AOC is even far left per se, but the, the people that are wait, 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 wait. You don't think AOC is far left? Well, I think in the American context, maybe. But keep in mind, in America, our politics are so skewed towards the right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the things that Americans are talking about right now are single payer health care and other things, which are pretty much agreed upon in most other first world countries. So. Yeah. Well, it's bizarre to think about how Boris Johnson, who was like described as the the Trump of England has views that align very closely with the Democratic Party in America, which is a yeah. weird thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, our, our culture here is, I think, a lot more skewed towards the right. There's a lot more of an emphasis on individualism and a lot of okay. topics which um, tend to um, not really be as respected in other European countries, which I think tend to more skew towards the right. Yeah. I think, to answer your question, is that uh, we keep electing out moderates. Yeah. Um, I think there's one moderate that I can name off the top, Mitt Romney. Well, I, I would even debate that Mitt Romney's not really a moderate. I mean, he was he was a pretty um, – he ran a really Republican campaign, but I think he's only seeming to be moderate now purely because Donald Trump is the Republican president and Donald Trump is a crazy person. Okay. Um, and he's a, the last voice of reason in the Republican Party, but I wouldn't even say he's really a moderate. I think he just kind of comes off as a reasonable moderate, but his policies are definitely more right-leaning. So then before that, I'll go Joe Donnelly. I, I, that's, oh, yeah. that's a good one. Joe Donnelly is pretty moderate, yeah. yeah. Or even um, John McCain. Yeah, John McCain, you could probably argue, is more moderate. But Joe Donnelly is a great example to kind of title together. Joe Donnelly ran a very local Indiana-focused campaign, you know. And, and that's where I think the moderates tend to win is when they're running more on a, on a local issue, just emphasizing the bread-and-butter issues that everybody really matters, you know. Donnelly didn't run on – he didn't run on these really divisive topics that tend to really get opinions out on people. He ran on healthcare, infrastructure, um, social security. Those are not flashy issues, yeah. and you're not going to see them being talked about on CNN. Oh, Joe Donnelly ran a campaign ad on social security, but that's what gets voters a lot of times. And I think locally it's kind of the same vein where people on local issues don't talk about the flashy issues, and that's why it doesn't get as much attention. That's why people are willing to cross ideologies to vote for the person they really think represents their community. So another question I have is the way – some of the examples you used, um, like Mitt Romney and, and Senator McCain, um, a lot of those people that you brought examples of are great examples of reaching across the aisle. Like they work with the other side. So is that really the new definition of moderate or – like how how do we look at that? Is reaching across the aisle some radical new idea that creates its own party, or where are we yeah. standing on that? That's a great question too. I mean, I think in historical politics, there's a lot more reaching across the aisle, and part of that was because the Democrats had a large conservative coalition in the South, and Republicans had a large uh, liberal coalition in the Northeast, which tend to work with the other party. Um, but now, because Democrats have become much more of um, an identity group, where they're you know in the cities they're a lot more diverse. They're, um, they they have they have a lot younger of a base. Whereas Republicans are largely just, I mean, essentially an old white person party. They have very conflicting bases and not a lot of overlap between them. Um, so nationally, I mean, look at any of the bills that have been very divisive. There's really not much overlap between the two parties working together. When that was not the case, even twenty years ago. I mean, twenty years ago, you had so many Democrats voting for the Iraq War. You had so many Republicans voting for. Bill Clinton's policies, there's so much uh, more room for agreement. And unfortunately, on the national level, it's might come back, but I don't think it's going to happen um, with our current political climate. And I mean, I'm a Joe Biden fan, 
And I think he's really a kind of person that can bring us together. Mm-hmm. But even still, I mean, if Joe Biden can't bring us together, who can? I mean, there's just I mean, he's a very reasonable, moderate guy. So if, if he can't even really bring the Republicans to pass some reasonable policies, I don't really know what the solution is. Um, and that's an unfortunate reality. But I think locally is where we we're talking before. That's what hopefully can be pushed more that kind of mentality of, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised locally. It's not a D versus R battle. There's a lot of, you know, rivalries within parties, a lot of coalitions that might be surprising to people. A lot of different issues are taken. Um, and I think there's a lot more of a consensus building mentality on a local level because they know each other on a personal level and they realize, hey, you know, if if we don't get this done, we're not going to fix the pothole in my street or, you know, improve the schools in my neighborhood. And whereas nationally, I think there's a little bit more divide and it's a lot more about voting your party line that doesn't really transcend on the local level as much. Okay. Um, I have one question and kind of strays off from our local elections topic, but I was talking about this the other day. Um, you grew up in Lawrence schools, right? Yeah. Um, and last week we talked about public versus, uh, private education. And when you look at Lawrence, Lawrence used to be Fishers. Yeah. Like 25 years ago, Lawrence used to be Fishers where it was growing exponentially. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of saw the, uh, Bishop Chatards come around. You kind of saw the, uh, cathedrals come around. Do you think those private schools... Um, affected the public education system in Lawrence. Absolutely, but I think the bigger um, reason for it is just the the, the, the white flight, always have, finding the new flashy thing. Um, I mean, 50 years ago, IPS was the place to be. It was one of the best yep. public school districts in the entire country. Um, John Marshall, uh, Shortridge, I mean, those were some of the highest-rated schools in the entire country. And we had, they had great basketball programs. They absolutely had great basketball programs. Although I think that's more of a symptom of being in Indiana rather than uh, <laughs> than, than being a great school system in the first place. Um, but th- that's th- that's the reality of it is w- when you have a new developing area, those schools are always the place to be. Right now, I mean, it's, it's Westfield, Carmel, Fishers. But even in Fishers, people are starting to leave Fishers because it's, you know, whatever they it's say about it. It's getting too big. It's getting too big, Yeah. You know, I mean, people are moving here by the thousands. It seems like, yeah, you know, but now people are starting to move to Fortville or Westfield or wherever they they're moving out to, um, because I think people like the new flashy thing. They like having the big new house, um, and unfortunately, the reality is for lo- communities like Lawrence Township and Washington Township and Pike Township is they're older, and a lot of the people that are you know that went to school there thirty years ago um, are moving out to a new community. And a lot of the people that do live there currently are older that maybe had had kids there that went there 40 years ago, but they don't have kids in the school districts anymore. Whereas all the people moving into Fishers and Westfield have younger families. Um, so I it's I think it's just kind of a natural cycle. I, I, I don't really think it's much of the doing of anybody specifically. Um, and then private schools obviously don't help. but Or the voucher schools or whatever. Vouchers, yeah, none of that helps. Um, but I think the bigger reason for it is honestly just – Indiana, we have Indianapolis specifically. We're growing so fast, and our suburbs are just kind of uncontrollable. I mean, they're just spreading out so fast, and I, I think people just love moving to new suburbs, and it's hurting communities that are thirty, forty years old um, that don't really have the new flashy thing to be relying on, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but private schools obviously don't help either, and you can debate it one way or the other. But unfortunately, people are <coughs> willing to send or. Not unfortunately per se, but people want to 
send their kids to the schools that they're um, more or less comfortable with, and those might be the private schools sometimes. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I personally think a lot of it is just kind of the exponential growth of the suburbs in Indianapolis is the reason why okay. the school, the sc- older school districts have been hurt. And then how does public versus uh, private school funding tie in with these local elections? That's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously, education is the most important local issue for almost everybody. Um, it's on everybody's mind. Everybody knows a kid that's in the public schools. Everybody was in the schools. Not always public, but everybody has some stake in the game. And, I mean, they're our next generation. So running a pro-public education campaign is always a popular thing to do. And, um, it, it, again, it's not flashy, but it, it's a pretty universally beloved topic. People like to support our teachers. They like to support our next generation. And if you're able to successfully campaign on that and make people aware that you're an ally of the public schools and you're going to defend them, um, I mean, that's a pretty popular position to take, all things considered. And it's it's very universal. It's one of those things, again, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you tend to support the public schools in your area. Um, and it's something I think can really bring people together. So going back to what we were talking about, I wanted to get a little bit of context about you. How did you first get involved in politics? Like, what was the first kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. So in the 2016 campaign, I, I had been kind of interested in politics. Um, I, I was a John McCain fan in 2008 purely because my friends in school were, which I think is a lot more common than people probably realize for kids. They tend to take whatever politics their friends have. Um, and then I started becoming a little more liberal. I started thinking about things. You know, I was like, well, you know, gay marriage is fine. Like a lot of these issues that I, I, I were being campaigned by Democrats. And then I, I, I was pretty much an Obama fan in 2012. Not really hardcore or anything, but if I were to vote, I'd probably vote for Obama. We had like a classroom election in school. I was like, yeah, Obama's cool. I'll vote for him. Um, and he's then, black. He's cool. Yeah, he's 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 great. He's I, everything I've seen seems to be good. Um, and then 2016, I remember actually specifically, I was sitting in study hall, and I got a news article. Uh, like we had a geography teacher in high school, and every day he would come in. We would talk about current events for about 45 minutes. It was awesome. It was actually probably one of the things that made me really interested in the world in general. Um, we would talk about this at the start of the presidential campaign for 2016. And he said, "Oh, they just got Ted Cruz, who's running, Rand Paul." Um, and then I would go on YouTube that day and look at their videos for announcements, which honestly I, I appreciate that I did because I could see just what their things were from the horse's mouth, you know, what they were actually saying. Um, what a weird expression. Yeah, from the horse. I don't know why people say it, but it, it's, a, it's a saying. Um, and then the, I, then I don't think it is. <laughs> oh, that's what saying. <laughs> no, it is. I'm it is. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, but anyways, don't be the, the, fourth or fifth, the fourth or fifth candidate um, that I heard and I was watching the video for is a guy named Bernie Sanders. Mm. And – it's ironic that I say that because I'm not – I mean I love I love Bernie Sanders. I think he's a great candidate, but he was not even my candidate in 2020. Um, and people tend to think of me as a Bernie Sanders hater, but that's a, another point for another day. Um, but I was a really huge fan of his, and through the campaign I was following him. I was you know, I was involved with all the Bernie Sanders social media. You know, everybody that knew me, I was always a big Bernie fan. And then I was – I wasn't a Hillary fan at that point, but – during the ele- as the election came closer, I was like, "Yeah, she's a good choice. I would I would vote for her if I had the ability to vote." And I thought she was going to win, and then she didn't. And like many, I was pretty defeated. I didn't really know what the you know the future was. And I was at my grandma's house, and she was she's a Democrat, and she was like, "You know, you should really find a way to get involved. You're obviously pretty upset about this. You should look at an email and email the 
the Marion County Democratic Party and the Indiana Democratic Party tried to get an internship. Turns out the Marion County Democratic Party emailed me back. I got an internship for that spring, spring of 2017. And I started meeting the people. I started getting involved more on a local level. And I worked my way up. I got a vi- I was the vice president of the Lawrence Township Democrats too because they saw the work I was putting in and they gave me that position. Um, and I just kind of started working in campaigns, the Poonam Gill campaign. I don't know if we went over that, but she was a state representative candidate in Indianapolis on uh, in Fishers and a bit of Hancock County, House District 88. Um, and it's very gerrymandered district. It was against Brian Bosma, who is, speaker of the House. was the Speaker of the House, longtime speaker. He never won a race within 35 points. Poonam Gill, I mean, it was really a David versus Goliath story. She was an engineer. She was Indian, first ever Indian candidate to run for office in Indiana. She was, again, a first-time candidate. She had no campaign experience. Her husband, same situation. He was um, a business guy, had no experience with any of this. But we ran a race within 10 points, and we were really proud of that. It was the biggest shift of any race in Indiana since 2008 for a state rep. We were really proud of that. We got him to retire. Yeah, and then he retired oh, wow. last year. Yeah. yeah. So Good then th- so that, that was – I was the only paid staffer on that campaign. So then 2019 – I worked on a lot of other local races in Lawrence. Uh, we had a pack that a lot of our campaigns contributed to, and I was just a lot of doing door-to-door, kind of the same thing. I, field is my thing. I love going door-to-door. Field being, you know, the, the actual, like, voter contact work of actually talking to voters. Um, and the then battlefield. 20, yeah, the battlefield, yeah. And then earlier this year, I was collecting signatures for Joe Biden um, in Indiana. I was the first person to do that. Um, and we were the first campaign to officially get on the ballot, so I was really proud of that through the work that a lot of our good volunteers put in, um, and I've just been uh, doing college dim stuff. Last year, I was the f- uh, finance director for College Democrats, or not finance director, uh, the fundraising director. And then this this year, I'm the vice president, so we're doing a lot of work with giving um, giving people, um, you know, the ability to help out local campaigns, getting local campuses connected with state rep and state senate campaigns, um, and then now I'm doing students for Biden stuff. I'm one of the leads for that in Indiana. Um, and I'm trying to just use my voice to spread whatever good I can for good Democratic candidates running. You run their uh, Instagram account, right? Um, so actually, me and another guy run their Instagram account. I run their Facebook and Twitter. Um, okay. You want to shout them out? Give them a yeah, it's, so it's, our people it's can give Indiana them a Indiana students for Biden. It's pretty simple. Yep. And our Twitter is Biden Indiana. Um, and we're trying to really amplify our social media. We got it to a 500 followers in a week, so I'm, I'm happy oh, wow. with that. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to, I, I guess, be local ambassadors for the campaign. To, uh, I, I think people, it's another media thing. People tend to sensationalize these things, and they say Biden doesn't have any support. But pretty much universally, even if people weren't a fan of Biden two months ago, a lot of the people I've seen are, are starting to become fans of his. And I think there's all the energy for him on a on a, on a student's basis. So. It's because Trump's been talking a lot. That, that's yeah. exactly. I feel, like, I feel like the more Trump talks, the the farther ahead Biden gets in the race. That's exactly right, and I'm not opposed to just letting that play out yeah. and, and seeing how it goes because I think he's his own worst enemy, unfortunately, and he tends to shoot himself in the foot more than we can count. So, yep. But, yeah, no, I, I, I'm just trying to really give a platform to candidates I think are running on good messages because, again, it's not flashy, but um, it, it, it's easy to get kind of stuck in the weeds of politics, but I'm trying my best to really be – a voice and support of people who are running for the right reasons and running with actual issues in mind that are going to do the right thing once they're elected in the first place. And with that, I want to ask you, why, what is the job of a state senator or a state uh, delegate or someone in the House versus someone that's on the federal level, a senator yeah. or a House member? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think part of it on a federal level, it's a lot more about kind of the bureaucracy in my eyes. Um, I've never worked on the Hill, um, but I obviously through my conversations and talking to people, that's kind of what I picked up on. It's a lot more the bureaucracy and most importantly, the emphasis on fundraising once you're at that level is extreme. I mean, the, the, the average senator or representative probably spends 30 hours a week on a phone, if not more, talking to donors who might be inclined to donate to them. Whereas locally, I think it's a lot more about, you know, taking kids from the local schools, you know, on a state house tour. It's a lot more about going to this community event that's opening some manufacturing plant in your district and, you know, being a speaker there. It's a lot more about going to your local elementary school and talking to the kids about why public service is important. Um, whereas I think nationally, it's a lot more about kind of the just the votes and the kind of the more, again, bureaucratic things. Whereas locally, it's a lot more about kind of just representing your community and being a, a public figure for a service. And there's a lot of voting going on, sure, but it's a lot less about, I think, the emphasis on the the issues themselves and it's a lot more about kind of just helping your community and being there for them and just being a representative for them okay um i want to get into juba er, wow the governor's race uh real quick um this year it is woody myers versus uh governor holcomb who is the incumbent um you want to tell us a little bit about woody myers yeah sure so he was um former health commissioner for indiana um, and he was on, uh, which is kind of funny. He was also the health commissioner for New York City. Um, he's a Harvard Medical School grad. He graduated from Stanford at I believe uh, nineteen or twenty. Um, he um, wow. had an MBA from Stanford as well. He's incredibly qualified, and I think um, he's got, got a little bit of a name recognition problem. Not everybody knows who he is right now, but once they get to know him, I think it might be interesting. Um, governor Holcomb is a little bit more under the radar. In, in relation to governors, especially given his predecessors, Mike Pence, who was a very, you know, divisive politician. Um, Governor Holcomb's stayed a lot more under the radar. Um, he's gotten a little bit more attention because of the whole mask issue. Because mm-hmm. of coronavirus, obviously, people are paying a lot more attention to how the states are handling it. Uh, last week, he instituted a max, mask uh, man- mandate, but he got rid of a lot of the penalty for it, and a lot of the sheriffs in the state are not recognizing it. So, I'm not really sure how effective it is, but um, he's emphasized a lot more of, I guess, the bread and butter issues, too, of, you know, he says he's helping infrastructure and education. and Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting race. Um, it's it's kind of unconventional because I think um, Governor Holcomb is a lot more of, especially with all the, the, the toxicity currently um, in the political system, I think he's a lot more of kind of a classic politician he's a lot more of a kind of a somebody who i think more gets stuff done um and i think people whether rightly or wrongly are tending to associate him more with the moderate wing of the party but he's also kind of had his uh fair share of things which people are pointing towards and governor uh dr meyer's campaign he's highlighted a lot of the education issues in our state which um the 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 teachers are paid pretty low here and um the, there's been a lot of studies about quality of education and people have highlighted some of those things and i, I think that would have been the most important issue for this campaign but COVID obviously has kind of taken it over and there's been a lot of controversies as to governor holcomb's response to it and i think there's an opportunity for uh, dr myers to capitalize on it it'll be interesting to see how well he does it 
Um, I, I know he called for a mask mandate about a month ago. Yeah. Um, and you can debate how that probably would have helped our state. Um, but I, I think COVID is probably going to be the defining issue for this election. And um, Dr. Myers being a health professional might give him some real advantage with that. Um, again, obviously, he's a doctor. He's He was a professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco. And uh, Governor Holcomb, um, I, I've, I've, I've seen some polls. He's tended to do pretty well. Um, but I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the race opens up as we get closer to election time and people are paying more attention to the issues themselves for the election. So I think the fact that Dr. Myers has the DR in front of, him, in front of his name could be detrimental in the way that I've seen kind of like the, the trends in Indiana. Because you said, you touched on a little bit how the sheriffs have said that they will not enforce the mask mandate. So it seems like a lot of people are resistant to medical kind of uh, guidance in a way. So I think that might hurt him a little bit. Obviously, I don't know about the rest of his platform, but if you just see Dr. Like Dr. Fauci started off uh, really, really well. Like everyone loved Dr. Fauci, and then he started taking away and restricting things, so it kind of pushed him down. Do you think the same thing will happen for Dr. Myers, or do you think that won't be an issue? It's possible, but I think still being a doctor, even if there's some controversies with specific ones and some, I guess, skepticism for you know experts in America, I think he's still it's still a very respected title, and especially with COVID, I think there's a lot more of an interest to get people that are experienced with with these positions in those elected positions in the first place. Yeah, and if you want to talk about COVID response, uh, Dr. Myers basically came up with Governor Holcomb's corona response. Yeah, and compared to other states, I'd say we Indiana did pretty. It has done to this point. Knock on wood pretty well compared to the texas's or the florida's i mean we're like average in terms of covid and we're increasing every day so i don't know how much credit i'd give to us um i think it's all kind of relative if you were to compare us to most countries in the world we've done very good but in comparison to some random southern states we've been decent but um i i'm not not sure who related to um to credit or blame because i think a lot of it comes down to the federal government because again it's a very federal issue and um some states have pretty much, I mean, Connecticut and New York and New Jersey have almost eliminated COVID at this point. Um, but unfortunately, our state is still rising in death counts every day. So I, I'm not I'm not really sure um, who to give credit to or blame to on that. But because a lot of it does it comes down to local people, it comes down to the people of the state itself. A lot of it comes down to the president. A lot of it comes down to the governor. Um, so it, it, it's very tough to accurately say you know whose fault it is one way or the other but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure indiana's done as good of a job as some people are saying we've done personally and i think it comes down to we don't have one leader to look up to right even if governor holcomb made this mask mandate other leaders which are the sheriff's offices around the around here are not recognizing it so when leadership tends to disagree yeah um, I think that causes mass confusion, Absolutely. and that's why we have so many anti-mask people. Yes, you know? that, that's a great point regardless of politics. I think when there's leadership that's in disagreement, things tend to – there's people that tend to capitalize on it and put a lot of propaganda out there, and they tend to try to put it one way, one way or the other. And unfortunately, President Trump has basically said um, he's not going to do anything on a federal level. He's just going to let it be the governor's responsibility, which – 
I'm not sure how effective that is. We tried it with seen. the Articles of Confederation. It <laughs> yeah. didn't work. I mean, that's part of the pr- – I was actually watching um, um, CBS the other day, and they had actually a really good um, conversation about this. They, they had a medical professional on there who talked about how what, – what our current basically system is is, hey, if you have bad COVID in your state, close down, and if not, open up, which seems like a good idea. But the problem is there's so much spreading between the states, mm-hmm. it's never effective. The only way we can really tackle COVID, if we want to completely get rid of it, is we have to just have a shutdown everybody at once. It doesn't matter if you have five cases right now or 15,000 cases. We have to all shut down or else it's going to spread. And there's going to be no stop to the virus unless we really effectively try to quarantine things and get things under control. That's other countries did initially. And we were very slow to do that. You know, while New York and uh, New Jersey were having their huge outbreaks a few months ago. Other states were reopening, and that's those are the states that are now currently having COVID outbreaks. And thankfully, New York, New Jersey have taken that understanding and are still closed down because they don't want to have another outbreak like southern states are currently having. Um, but unfortunately, when you have a federal government that is not reacting in uniform to each other, there tends to be, as you said really well, um, a lack of um, – consensus among leadership which tends to create a lot of confusion and um just divisiveness divisiveness in yeah a lot of confusion a lot of people running around yeah like chickens with their heads chopped off yeah it seems exactly. like um and, and and not to cut you off but i think what's been great about it is a lot of the 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 best people with their responses to covid have been a lot of elected officials who've seen in their community and have realized hey we can step up and actually do something about this um and it's a lot of the the national people have been more of the exploitive ones who are kind of stoking the fears. Um, fear mongering. Yeah. Fear mongering with COVID right now is fear mongering. Yeah. The the fear of losing their personal Liberty because of it. And a lot of these issues, which I don't really understand that much. Um, but there's a lot of, um, I think doing it for their personal gain to be the one that's leading the movement against it. Rather Rather than actually being a person to help the solution and being, person in the country to actually defeat covid okay i can agree with that um i think lastly i want to talk about um next week we have a guest amy cole rivera on um you you know her yeah kind of right yeah i actually went to her fundraiser of hers on friday she's a great candidate and she's running against current speaker of the house todd houston um what are your thoughts on that upcoming election i think that's a really really interesting race i mean Fishers, one, of, one of the most interesting races in India. Absolutely, Fishers. I mean, Fishers was the bedrock of the of the Indiana Republican Party for so long, and since Trump, it's not only become fifty fifty. I mean, Joe Donnelly won her district overwhelmingly in twenty eighteen, um, who was a Democrat, and Fishers elected a de- two Democrats to the city council yep. of the four that ran. So fifty percent of the Democrats got elected. They didn't even run enough candidates, but if they had ran candidates everywhere. Democrats may have picked up a majority on the city council. Um, so there's a huge pushback towards the Trumpism on the city council. And it's especially interesting because re- uh, Speaker Houston, he's the, the representative here. He's the Speaker of the House, obviously. And he seems to be somewhat involved, but... He's very involved. Yeah. But I, I, I don't really know how much it can transcend the national issues. Because as we were talking about, I think right now everyone's mind is on COVID and kind of the parties themselves and Trump and Biden and all these people that, you know, 
I'm not really sure how much he can escape it, even if I mean, because I think Biden is almost certain to win the district. Um, I'm That's not what sure. Say right, he's like oh, yeah. plus fourteen in our district, really? right? Yeah, yeah. He's Biden is crushing it in, in, in Indiana. 05, yeah. I mean, it's almost a 20, 30 point swing from twenty sixteen. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I mean, for people I know, there's plenty of Trump supporters I know, not even Trump supporters, people that voted for Trump, you know, kind of tepidly in twenty sixteen, who are now mm-hmm. voting for Biden and other Democrats. I think it's really going to have a huge impact in suburbs like this where. People are just sick of all the drama. They're sick of all the divisiveness in Washington. And I think there's really going to be um, an opportunity for Democrats to pick up some seats in Carmel and Fishers and a lot of these communities, which are a lot more about kind of being responsible with your tax dollars. And Republicans aren't really doing that right now. And yeah. I, I'm not sure how much uh, Representative or Speaker Houston can avoid it. Um, Amy Vercole, she's a great candidate. She's a lawyer um, doing, doing her due diligence to knock doors and other things. Um, and I think it could be one of the closest races in Indiana for this fall. And it would not, it w- I think people might be really surprised, but it would not shock me if there's an upset. I, it wouldn't shock me either. Uh, both of those candidates are, um, my friends, yeah. I'd say, um, friends with Liz Houston, uh, who is Todd's daughter. Uh, Todd recommended me on the Iliac council that I'm on, which is Indiana legislative youth council. Um, and Amy is also a great friend of mine. Yeah. Um, went to her fundraiser last year. Uh, so this will be a very interesting race, but one issue yeah. I wanted to get to you about on both of these candidates where they really, really, really disagree is uh, public versus private education. Yeah. So Amy Colavera is a very pro public education candidate. Yep. Um, and um, speaker Houston is a voucher voucher school guy. Yeah. Um, and I want you to talk about how that can affect our our public schools in this district yeah i'll say one thing before i get into that i I think actually the fact that you know both amy and speaker houston on a personal level really says everything you need to about local politics the fact that they've both you know consider you a leader in their community and they're they've both reached out to you and have you know given you things to really amplify your voice i think this is a lot about the, the emphasis of local pol- people in local politics yeah, it's all about sure. the personal relationship with him which i think is a great thing to have because it rewards people to actually put in the work and know people in their communities um private versus public i'm a, I'm a public school guy um I, I i think there's specific times where vouchers are not a bad idea um i'll give you an example so if you are living in the south side of indianapolis the south side of indianapolis has a huge burmese population um and the public schools there are like in Indiana is one of the huge havens for Burmese people in, this, um, in the entire country. I no Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, yeah, it's, it's but they're so densely populated on the south side. You'd have no idea unless you were here um, or there on the south I side. I lived on the south side. Oh, did, did you actually? For a year. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, um, but Greenwood especially is huge for Burmese people, um, but they tend to be very insulated in their community. And Fort Wayne is the same thing. Fort Wayne has a very large Burmese population, but. When they're going to the schools, they're English-speaking schools primarily. So it's really tough for them to adjust. And I think they're trying to open up some Burmese-specific schools. But I think in those circumstances where people are coming in, they're migrating from a different country, they know a different language, they know a different culture, it would make sense to open up sort of Burmese-specific transitional schools to get them back in public schools, but sort of work as more of a, a stepping point to become public schools in the first place so i think those actually make a ton of sense so you don't have to they don't have to be paying for it out of pocket i think the public or the you know government giving money to those families to send them to schools so they can become better 
um, you know, students in the future. I think a great thing to have. And it's not only great for the families, but I think it'd be great to bring people here in the first place. If we're able to say, hey, look, we're going to provide for your education. We're going to allow you the opportunities to adapt to our culture. And um, if you want to go to these schools, we'll provide for it because I think it's a really good benefit for them to have that community in the first place, to know people of their culture in the schools and to have the ability to really understand it more than if they were put in a general ESL program, which may not have the resources to really sufficiently provide for them to transition to America and English and all these things which are really tough cultural barriers to have. So I think in situations like that, it's a great thing to have. Um, what I'm not as much of a fan of is just the general um, charter schools that are opening and then sending vouchers to the families because a lot of them are a lot more unstable. Um, for all the faults of IPS schools and a lot of these school districts, um, it's not, I don't think, as popular as people say. A lot of these schools are, you know, being um, defunded after a few years. A lot of them have lower test scores than the traditional public schools. Um, the, the teachers aren't being paid anything. I mean, there's so many problems with it. I don't even know where to start. Um, so I, I, I would personally just say, you know, help out public schools, you know, give them more resources. Because I, I don't think opening these schools, a lot of them are also for uh, profit and a lot of them are um, religious uh, programs, which I don't think we should be funding in the first place because a lot of them – Separation of church and state. Absolutely. And a lot of them have had a lot of controversies with you know who they're letting teach there. A lot of them are having controversies with students they allow there. And there's a lot of issues with you know having these kids who are going there and being told these things that are not necessarily true and that are very biased. And I have a problem with the, the state kind of – playing uh favorites of who can do that and who can't do that so i think i think having private schools is fine there's a lot of people actually now they're pushing to abolish private schools i don't think it's realistic i think people want to send their kids there fine but the government shouldn't be handing money to people to send their kids to those schools which are teaching things that are not really acceptable in a lot of ways yeah for sure i think private schools are important yeah. Um, last week, I kind of feel like we didn't really say that, you know, yeah, in our, I in our like, episode. I feel like we tore down private schools yeah. for a while. But. And, uh, but Joey and I did talk about it for about uh, two or three minutes is that if your kid learns better in that private school yeah. environment, because there are kids that, you know, yeah. compared to HSE, who, where you have, you know, 25, 30 people in a class. Yeah, 3,000 students. Yeah. yeah. Bishop Chatard, which has, you know, 15 20 kids per class and maybe a graduating class of 300 yeah even less yeah you know there's a big difference in how that kid gets educated yeah absolutely so if your kid happens to learn better with you know smaller class sizes or whatever it may and be there's a lot more enforcement too in small schools exactly you know? they have the ability to you know um they know everybody in their school they, they can reach out to them and say hey josh why didn't you turn in your assignment last week whereas in a public school you can just fall under the cracks you slip under the cracks you can be kind of anonymous in the school. There's a lot less accountability. I think it makes sense in a lot of cases to have that. Um, and if you're really religious too, you, if you want to send your kids there, fine. You can do that if you want. Um, and if you're, you know, dead set, there's plenty of parents that are dead set having their kids go to Harvard. If you want to have that, fine. Send them to whatever private school you want, right? But I don't think we should be paying for it in the first place. Um, and I, I, I have especially trouble with us paying for the schools that are um, exclusion that are excluding certain groups, whether they're gay or whether they're so many different um 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 issues i mean i, I know cathedral has thrown out some transgender students which is not really uh a very kind thing to do ron and, collie with the gay students yeah like there's so teachers. many teachers yeah there's so many examples of of these schools that are being very exclusionary and we're giving essentially our tax dollars to those schools which yeah. i don't think is 
something we should be promoting. So do you think that will make a difference in the election between Speaker Houston and, and Ms. Cole? Like the I, I, think, I think it absolutely might. I think a lot of people are fed up. I mean, what surprised me is a lot of the most outspoken people in support of public schools right now are in the rural small towns who have had these charter schools pop up in their cities. And it, it's created huge issues for the public schools. And the teachers aren't getting raises. I mean, the teachers are literally having qualifying for food stamps. A lot of them have to have second jobs because they're not making enough as teachers. And even though a lot of the, the charter schools are um, not making or paying teachers much, a lot of the public school teachers are still transitioning over to charter schools. And it's creating a very large issue, especially in these rural communities, who the backbone of, you know, the, the public schools in these small towns are one of the largest people at higher um, they're one of the largest employers there. You know, the backbone of these communities in so many ways, and they're being pushed out because there's more favoritism being played and their, their budgets are being cut, whereas these voucher schools are coming in, or charter schools are coming in, and they're giving vouchers to the kids, and it's creating a really tough situation for the, the, the public schools to survive. So, I mean, we live all in the suburbs, right? Or like the suburb kind of, I mean, I, I'm from Marion County, but it's more of a suburban mentality, I think, you know. Lawrence, it, it, yeah, basically. it's not like in the city itself, so it's it's different. But um, I, I've been surprised at a lot of the most, because I, I tend to associate these democratic issues, like being pro-public education, with being um, in the cities, whereas the rural areas are more Republican. But that's a really not the case for schools. I think the most pro-public education people tend to be in the in the small towns and it's really interesting to see how that's played out where a lot of the the largest advocates have been from the small towns and the rural areas in the first place who've been the most impacted by these policies of voucher schools or vouchers and private charter schools and private schools and all these things all right i think we're gonna end it there yeah i think thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks Absolutely. for thanks for coming talking to us today nick i appreciate you it's been very interesting yeah no i i it's been a great conversation to have and um i can talk about politics all day so i never mind you want to give the people your twitter uh, my Twitter, it's Nick underscore Roberts with two T's and two S's. So it's N-I-C-K underscore R-O-B-R-T-T-S-S. And you'll see his Twitter mentioned on our Twitter if you want to give him a follow. Um, again, Nick, I appreciate you so much. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you as a friend, Ranveer. I Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I can't wait to have you on again, um, you know, in the future. Yeah, when we start talking about you know federal elections, maybe. Oh man, there, there's a lot to talk about with that. There's so much to talk about, and I can't wait to have you on again, and hopefully as like a uh, perennial guest. Absolutely, well, I'll be excited for that. I love I love talking to people, and I think there's a, lo- a lot going on. So there's definitely no lack of things to be talking about right now, federal, state, whatever. So, all right, guys, uh, stay beautiful, wear your masks. All right, love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to episode three of our podcast. Again, we appreciate you guys so, 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 so much. And again, we are always getting better and evolving, like I said last week, like Pokemon. But next week, this coming week, we have Amy Cole Rivera coming on, and we cannot be more excited to have her as a guest. Um, she is running in uh, District 5 to be a state senator, and she's running against um, one of my really good friends, Todd Houston. Um And I cannot wait to have a great conversation with her and, you know, really get to know her and also for you guys to get to know her. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.